affection. We must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. What a vision for a group of people together, for our society. Now compare that with, one that, uh, with a speech that was delivered 300 years later by presidential candidate uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who also had a vision for the same society, but it was very different to Winthrop's. It wasn't knit together as one man, it was every man for himself. And it became known, that speech, as the rugged individualism speech. Now which sounds more attractive to you? Now most Christians would say, well, Winthrop's, of course, because that sounds like what the Bible says about what the church should be like and what the kind of society we look forward to in the new heaven and new earth. Yeah, that's what we're looking forward to. But when the rubber hits the road and when the time comes to put these principles into practice in a shared life together, I think that some of us really prefer Hoover's vision. We might say we want a shared life with the members of our church family, but making time for that, well, that's inconvenient. We might say we want deeper relationships, but not the kind that demand any real commitment. We might say we want to change and be more like Jesus, but not really if it means letting someone into my life for the purposes of accountability. Associate with any of those views? That's rugged individualism. But it's not what Jesus had in mind for his followers, gathered by the gospel into local church families just like ours. No, Jesus' vision for his church is a shared life together, and that's what we see in Acts 2 42 to 47. Here's a little catch up for us. In Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus give his followers the task of finishing the mission he began. To testify to the truth about Jesus everywhere. You will be my witnesses in, all, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he had promised them power as well. In Acts 2, Jesus sent them help in the person of the Holy Spirit. He fills them with power, power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. And lo and behold, that's exactly what the apostle Peter does, having been filled with the Spirit. He stands up and preaches the gospel at Pentecost, and 3,000 people repent of their sin and are baptized. That's what happens. But then what? What did they do after that? How did they live? What did discipleship of 3,000 new converts actually look like for these 120 believers who were already there in Jerusalem? In what ways did the gospel transform their lives, shape how they spent their days and their weeks? Well, let's read Acts 2 together, because we're given a bit of a portrait of the earliest church. Acts 2, 42 to 47. They, that is the 3,000 that were added to the number that day, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. This is the word of God. So the more I've studied this text this week, uh, the more certain I am that verse 42 acts something as a summary statement unpacked in the verses that follows. And ultimately what you have are four key commitments that end up in one or two specific results. Uh, in the body of Christ, in the church. So we'll look, first of all, at these four commitments. We'll spend most of our time doing that. It tells us that in verse 42, these are the four things that they were devoted to. And the word, so devoted, in other words, totally given over to these things, stuck like glue to these things, non-negotiable things. The first thing they were devoted to was learning. Look with me at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to growing in the knowledge of God together. In other words, they became students of God's word. I think there are two main reasons for that. I think the authoritative teaching of the apostles and actually the experience of these newly converted believers. First of all, the authoritative teaching of the apostles. Luke has gone to great lengths in the book of Acts already to highlight like in bright pink Stabilo Boss marker that the apostles had been appointed by Jesus, personally chosen by him. In other words, they carried the authority of the king who sent them. I think the proof of that is in verse 33. Here we see miracles that, that the apostles performed, serving in the same way that they did with Jesus to authenticate the authority of the one speaking and performing the miracles. And that's why the teachings of these apostles went into the Bible. And that's why our sermons should only come out of it. Both the teaching and the miracles brought then a sense of awe, which helped people to see that God is in this. And, and, and in order to know him better, they devoted themselves, themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, I think the experience of these new believers enthused them in their commitment to hearing the apostles' teaching also. I mean, how did they come to believe in Jesus? Well, through the apostle Peter's preaching. Peter had just taken a passage from the Bible, explained it, applied it to the listener's situation. They were then convinced of this truth uh, and responded in repentance and baptism. So their lives have just been transformed by hearing the teaching of the apostle Peter. And if hearing the teaching of the apostles had led them to saving faith in these guys, if that was the means that God uses to declare his glorious salvation and turn them from being sinners into God's sons, it's no wonder, having their eyes opened through that preaching, that they find themselves hungry for more and devoting themselves to learning more from the same guys. They're giving themselves wholly to knowing God and his great salvation in greater detail. That's often the experience of a new believer, isn't it? Their appetite for learning often puts mature believers to shame. 
A new believer might ask an older one, oh, what were you reading today? Oh, well, I did my uh, four readings in McShane. What about you? Oh, well, I read Psalms. All of them. You know, they're, they're just so excited. They just devour it. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. And if you are a new Christian, don't ever lose that. Keep devouring it. Now, this devotion to learning should never fade. Maybe we've been Christians for a few years now. We're reading our Bibles regularly, making every effort to pay attention when the Word is preached. Making every attention, effort to pay attention when that Word is preached. The Christian life is a lifelong devotion to knowing God and more and more and being changed into the likeness of Jesus. More and more, that's what it's all about. So if we do find ourselves bored with sermons and Bible studies and Bible reading, our faith might well be weakening. We're not fulfilling the demands and the requirements of true discipleship that will bless us, fill us with awe, and help us make disciples. Find out why that's happening. Are you a lazy learner? Do we have too many distractions? We need to get to the root of that because we can end up consigning ourselves to immaturity in the faith and ineffectiveness in mission. And our family members and friends who don't know Jesus will not thank us for that in eternity. So what does devotion to the apostles' teaching look like? How do we give ourselves to knowing God and growing in our faith? Well, it's quite simple. We see what the believers did. They met together in big groups and small groups. Verse 46 says that they went up to the temple every day to hear the apostles preach. It doesn't actually say in verse 46 they went to hear them preach. It says they went up every day. But a few chapters later, in chapter 5, verse 42, it describes what happened when they went up to the temple every day. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming, preaching, in other words, that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's what followers of Jesus do when they have a real hunger for God's word. They gather with the church family as a whole regularly to hear God's word preached and opened up. But we know we need more than that. We need small groups, of course, that provide the context for learning and growing as a community of believers together, where, of course, relationships are vital. You can't read through the New Testament at all without coming to the conclusion that relationships are utterly vital. How else can we expect to fulfill the commands of the New Testament apostles in all the one another passages if we refuse to be with one another and engage seriously in one another's lives. Does the word devotion describe our commitment to the apostles' teaching? Ask someone who knows you, knows you well, what would they say? Do we read it every day? Do we have a plan? We should have a plan. Ask each other afterwards, what's your plan? Do we make it a priority to attend every Sunday? The big non-negotiable two things go in your calendar. For me, Christmas Day and every church, every Sunday church. <laughs> and my wife's birthday, three things. We wouldn't go a whole day without food. Uh, so what makes us think we can live life without the living bread that Jesus says we need to survive? Well, our big gatherings, our Sunday services, of course, give us the opportunity to begin and end the day by coming under the hearing of God's life-transforming words. 
alongside our fellow brothers and sisters, fellow fighters in the faith. And I just love it. It enriches me. It blesses me. I mean, if I stop coming, I want people just to tell me outright that I'm being sinful and stupid. And you should sack me, by the way. (laughs) But are you committed to small group study as well? This is why we've been thinking long and hard over the past year about our small group set up in our church. It's a hard thing. Discipleship in a church of 550-odd folk. The elders are responsible to give an account before the Lord as to how that works out. We take that very, very seriously. How do we do it? We've been praying about that during the week. It's our, grow, it's our key to growth in Christ-likeness. In some form, small groups have to play an important part. It's essential in equipping us to be as witnesses in our city, and yet few of us actually have the kind of healthy discipline relationships that serve us as we follow Jesus. So how can we expect to grow? Of course, it's not what I'm talking about here is not just the point of meeting together for the sake of it. It's asking the question, are we really invested in one another's lives? And where do we get that from? Well, we get it from the very next thing. Not only is this early church a learning church, it's a loving church. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves also to the fellowship. That is, living as the people of God together. Now, fellowship, in my opinion, is a biblical word that has lost its punch. I think we've neutered it of its importance. I mean, to many, fellowship is what happens when Christians just get together in the same room and have a coffee and a chat. That's not fellowship, according to the Bible. It takes way more than that. It's a shared life together. Uh, The root um, meaning of the word for fellowship is the word common, from which we get our word community, where we share a common unity profoundly through our union with Christ. And what we see in Acts is these brand new Christians take life together as something elementary. It's basic Christianity. Basic Christianity involves a shared life together with other Christians. And devoting yourself like this means actually having a whole new mindset. Look with me at verse 44. These guys were not guilty of keeping others in the church at arm's length. They weren't guilty of viewing one another as an inconvenience. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone, anyone as he had need. Now, it has to be said, this is not communism, where the state forces sharing. This isn't even communalism, where no one has private property. No, what we have here is a depiction of genuine sacrificial love for each other. Someone's just lost a job, family not able to make ends meet. Someone says, well, let's see what I can sell on eBay to see how I can help. You know, they're devoting themselves to one another. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during uh, the war in Germany. Has written an amazing little book called Life Together. You should read it this year. He says, loving one another in this way to this extent speaks the Christian language with overwhelming eloquence. But it seems, and I'm challenged by this, that some of us prefer to be less eloquent. Because the idea of a shared life together is is actually just a bit of a frustration. Some might even call it a nightmare. Really? Spend time with people? (laughs) 
I mean, we go out of our way to make sure that our conversations with fellow believers at times are just mundane and self-protective. But I don't think we can avoid the challenge of these verses. Because if we do, we just become co-conspirators in a church that prefers superficiality to genuine fellowship. And as a consequence, as we'll see, we will have less awe and less of a fear of the Lord than we ought to have and less effective in our mission. And that is a serious problem. We can't shrink our understanding of the church to an hour and a half on a Sunday. That's not what Jesus meant for a shared life together. We are to love one another. Bonhoeffer says, Let him who has the privilege of living a common Christian life praise God from the bottom of his heart for the presence of our other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to a believer. Let him who has such a privilege Thank God on his knees and declare, grace, grace, it is nothing but grace. How true is that? And if that wasn't what we were thinking when we came in, if that isn't what we're thinking as we enter into this new year, oh, please let it be the case as we leave this place tonight or else make it a point for prayer so that at least if it's a slow burner, we're like that at the start of 2016. What does devotion to the fellowship look like? Well, I've hinted at it. We need a church of 550 members. It's, it's almost impossible to achieve this without some kind of small group meeting. And I've heard people say, well, I kind of like the size of Charlotte because it kind of preserves my anonymity. Well, I worry for your soul. I, I'm genuinely worried if you slip out too quickly. Without a church-run fellowship group or a small group of friends, even formed organically. It doesn't need to be organized centrally. It could be a one-to-one. Without these kind of things, we won't be able to devote ourselves to the kind of life together that God expects of his people. And we'll end up just being disobedient. Because how else can we know what needs we have? If we don't even know each other, how can we expect to love one another? They love one another by sharing their life together. And in their shared life together, what else did they do? Well, they devoted themselves thirdly to praising God together and remembering the gospel of God together. This is what it means when in verse 42 it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Basically, they become worshippers of Jesus together. Now, one of the primary ways that they praised God was through communion or the Lord's Supper, referred to here as the breaking of bread. Now, communion for these guys wasn't something tagged on to the end of service. It certainly didn't involve little squares of bread. No, it involved more of a meal together, a meal made meaningful by the sharing of a common loaf and common cup. Some of that grosses you out, I know, but that's all right. But Jesus had commanded the observance of this feast, if you like, until he returns. He had said to his apostles, do this in remembrance of me. So it was a key part of the worship of the church when they gathered together. And of course, you know, just in case you don't know, communion is several things wrapped up in one. It is intended as a symbolic remembrance of the gospel, of Christ's atoning death on our behalf. It serves as a proclamation of his death and his resurrection until he returns. 
And of course, at the individual level, it provides that opportunity for self-examination, even as we did this morning. But communion is for the church as an expression of our common union. And we share in it together as an expression of our unity, collectively expressing our gratitude to God. And again, I think verse 42 is unpacked further down the page. Verse 46 says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Why does Luke want to highlight this commitment in particular, of all the things he could say, as a feature of the early church? And why does it matter to their life together? Well, I think there are three reasons. There are more, but I'll give you these three. Well, one, it's a matter of simple obedience. Uh, Jesus commanded the keeping of this memorial meal, and by their observance of it, they were obeying Jesus. Number two, it stimulates the church to praise God for the most important thing that he has done for his people. It had to be central. I don't know about you, but at communion time, I am reminded of the very reason why I follow Jesus Christ. And I am overwhelmed every time by the reminder of what I used to be. And overwhelmed again and again by an, an astonishment at what God has made me to be. And what I will be in the future, according to his grace. And when I take bread and wine, I feel like I am both torn apart and put right back together again. All in the same go. And the fact that I do that, surrounded by a bunch of people, that's you, who similarly have been torn apart and put right back together again, who've similarly had their lives transformed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are taking that bread and wine with thankful hearts because they know they didn't deserve it, and yet they receive it, and so they take it and are happy because of it. It's meaningful. And this tangible, physical bit of bread, the redness of the grape juice, reminds us, and helps me to see anyway, helps me grasp the gospel, and it evoke, evokes awe in me and recalibrates me. It resets me to the factory default settings that I should have as a genuine follower of Jesus. Does not do that for you? It's a joy. And thirdly, it's another mark of the unity of the church. Actually, in one sense, it's a leveler. The thing that gathers God's people together is the gospel that bulldozes every barrier. We see this in Ephesians 2. The things that might normally divide people like ethnicity or race or social class and so on, they're just removed. And all sorts of people are brought together testifying to the reach of the gospel. And that's what brings gladness in each other's homes and sincerity in sharing in one another's lives. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, do you know that this is one of the reasons that historians give for the massive spread and scope of Christianity in the first century when there were already plenty of established religions and ideologies present? How come Christianity swept them aside? Well, the primary reason that historians give, a guy called Kenneth Scott Latourette, a late Dio scholar, said the primary reason was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A spark ignited these people and transformed them. He's half right. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit who empowered them to do all that Jesus had commanded them to do. But the second thing 
The second thing is that these guys loved each other in a way that no one else in any society had done. No one loved like these people. Everyone else was divided, either by race or gender or social class or whatever. But the gospel, when received by faith through, by many people, put rich man and poor man alike together on a level as they looked after each other and worshipped God together. Jew and Greek who became Christians, they would normally mix or mingle and they worship God together when they put their trust in Jesus. The Lord's Supper was a leveler and it testified to the fellowship of the gospel and of the church. So what does devotion to the breaking of bread look like for us? Well, we make it meaningful by, by actually studying our Bibles and understanding what we're doing when we gather. I mean, what do you think about when we gather? Do you just follow the elders and the servers around? Do you time it? You know, what do you do? Where does your mind wander in that time? Sometimes it does. Well, rein it in. Read Psalm 51. Read something that, that just gathers your heart and helps you understand the seriousness of what we're doing in that moment and rejoice in it as we do it together. Make it a priority attend. Make the most of it. And don't let minds wander. This is what they devoted themselves to. Regularly remembering the gospel and praising God together because of it. Fourthly, praying. Asking great things from God together. They devoted themselves, verse 42 says, to prayer. They came as dependent children to a generous father. When, when the gospel opens our eyes <clears throat> to see the beauty of Christ, we are drawn to desire more of him. And prayer is simply the articulation of that heart's response. It's how we make the most of that relationship that we didn't used to have. We were, we were at enmity with God. We were far from him, but through the gospel, we are brought near, reconciled to him. And prayer is a key aspect of our collective recognition of that together. We pray. We pray prayers of adoration and thanksgiving. But in verse 42, I think here we're looking primarily at intercession. That is asking God to do things. And the reason I say that is because that's the kind of prayer that saturates the book of Acts. So in chapter 4, you have God's people praying together for boldness to speak out, even in the face of persecution. Uh, another example would be in chapter 12, where God's people prayed together specifically for Peter's release from prison. Why? Because, well, they enjoy the relationship they have with God and the invitation that God has given them to, when he said, ask Seek, knock. Prayer is, of course, the antithesis of our self-reliance. It demonstrates our full dependence on God, both as individuals and collectively as a church. It demonstrates that we've grasped the magnitude of God's character, especially the fact that he is a generous giver when we consider the things we ask for. And, of course, it honors him as the source of all blessing in our life. Are we devoted to praying together as they were? In the big and the small. 
at the temple and in their homes as we gather together as a church in a meeting like this or in our homes. It's been wonderful to gather together every night this past week to pray, encouraging in many ways, but at the same time still concerning to see so few out. People have genuine reasons. I acknowledge that. Most churches, of course, find it difficult to gather more than a small fraction of their Sunday congregations to corporate prayer times. But that's only half of it, really. I mean, sometimes it's just we don't really make the most of these prayer times. It's easier to spend time sharing news and requests than actually praying together. And even in our small groups, we find that we are really good at making time for the Bible study and discussion and the socializing, but then praying together, that gets squeezed out often, doesn't it? Why is this? I wonder if sometimes it's just because we don't get beyond the religion thing. We ought to pray to the relationship thing that you get to pray. You get to speak to God. And those with genuine relationship with God will want to pray and will pray even though nothing on the outside presses them to. We must devote ourselves to praying together, praying when we gather, asking great things of God, even as we've done this week, remembering to pray for one another. If you're a member here, do you have a church membership directory? When was the last time you got an updated one? Yeah, we all need new membership directories. We need to be praying for one another. It just so happens that the membership directory falls almost into 31 days. Don't worry if your name ends with X, Y, or Z in February. You still get prayed for at the end. Don't worry. We don't cut you out. But we should make the most of this amazing resource to pray for one another. What an incredible way to ask God to bless people, even the ones that you don't know that well, with the very same blessings that you're asking him to bless you with. So you read in the morning, oh, Lord, I can see how the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to have a pure heart and a good conscience. Lord, oh, bless me with a pure heart and good conscience. That's so selfish. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. The first word drives us out, reminds us we're in community. Give us today our daily bread. We must pray for one another every day. Our membership directory serves us really well. And our CBC online helps us to pray for our mission partners. Have you got the new copy? There are some in the stairwells still. They're numbered too. Let's pray for our mission partners across the world. Let's ask great things of God. And so demonstrate what a true church looks like. These are the things that we should devote ourselves to. Well, these four things highlighted by Luke really define the shared life of the earliest church. These things really aren't optional for us. They're elementary. Now, we might say, well, I feel a bit too busy for that. We can't be too busy for the essentials. Someone's got to give. And what's going to give to make these things primary in our lives? Now, no doubt, the early church, they had their struggles. It must have been messy to disciple 3,000 brand new believers. 
But nevertheless, God's people, God filled his people with his spirit, united them together as a church, and transformed them through his grace. Now, what is the result? What happens when God's people are devoted to their shared life together as a church? To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? Well, there's a couple of things in there. We're told that they were filled with awe. Filled with awe, they had a deeper sense of what the fear of the Lord is. And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It helps us know how we should walk in our lives. It helps us to make decisions in our lives. It helps us ward off sin in our lives. But more than that, it helps the church to grow. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Some people think that when you look at Acts 2, it's, it's rather introspective. It's very self-focused to spend all that time devoted to those four things. But there is no question that verse 47 gives us a peek into the life of the early church, that they were missional even as they went about these things. They had not forgotten the overarching mission that Jesus Christ had given them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by God's grace as they devoted themselves to their life together as a church. And gave evidence by their witness that the gospel works. It tears down barriers. It unites people to God. It unites people with one another. Giving testimony of its truth and its effectiveness. Many came to believe. Many who were filled with a knowledge of God and an understanding of the gospel and a deeper, ever-deepening sense who's, who were turning away from their sin because of what they understood about the gospel and turning to God in faith were living out this transformation before people and surely declaring with their mouths, this is because of Jesus who died for our sin. And who rose again to give us life. And who is now ascended at the right hand of God. Ruling and reigning over this world. Living through his church. His body. To bring as many people to know him as possible. Until he comes. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. This is why we gather like this. We gather like this to be equipped really. And we make no bones about it. We want to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. To understand what, who God is, what he's done for us, what it means for us. And what it makes us is, yes, a, a, a community that has a shared life together. That where we value one another and love one another deeply. But it should never be introspective. It drives us out. So if you're here tonight, the reason the person you came with brought you is because they love you and because actually they're just doing what Jesus has called them to do and they're actually doing for you the most precious and special thing the most meaningful thing that anyone could ever do for you and that is introduce you to Jesus listen to them listen to them hear what they say give them an ear they can't force you to become a Christian no one can but they're going to tell you the best news ever. And believe it. Even tonight, do what these 
new Christians were doing. Telling people about the gospel so that they were turning from their sin, turning to God in faith, living a new way, the way they were meant to live according to their creator's plan. And you can too. It might just be the case that you would be added to this fellowship that this very day. Similarly, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are not to be so preoccupied with each other that we forget about the mission. We don't misunderstand it. We must be bold and generous as a community in sharing our faith and living it out. We must live a life that is attractive to others and demonstrate that the gospel really works because after all, true fellowship, true fellowship always overflows in mission. So may we be given help this week, uh, this year, and every year the Lord gives us to strive to be the people he has called us to be in our shared life together. It's a challenge for us, I feel it. I think we all should. And make it a point for prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Take a few moments in the quietness to consider any particular points that the Lord has convicted you by. Father, your word tells us plainly 